This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Shapeshift.io. With no account or signup required, it's the easiest way to buy and sell Litecoin, Dogecoin, Darkcoin, and other leading cryptocurrencies. Go to Shapeshift.io to instantly convert altcoins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges. Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And my name is Brian Farman Crane. Uh, we're here today with uh, Brian, another Brian, Brian Hoffman, so it's going to be confusing. Uh, he is the, the lead developer, so the main guy behind OpenBazaar. Now, I'm sure many of you have ho- heard of OpenBazaar. Uh, OpenBazaar is, is the idea to have a completely decentralized uh, marketplace. It's a really revolutionary idea, really interesting idea, and uh, huge potential. So really excited to talk about that today. Um, now, before we get started, and before so we sort of let Brian introduce himself a bit as well, we just wanted to mention briefly uh, the Inside Bitcoins conference that's coming up in Berlin. So that's going to be on March 5th and 6th. Uh, I'm going to be there. Sebastian's going to be there. Uh, Sean Jones is also going to be there. So it will be, uh, everyone's going to be there. Uh, I'm also going to give a talk, uh, like one of the keynotes on the second day, uh, about uh, actually about many of the issues we've been talking about over the last months, sort of surrounding uh, Bitcoin economics and, and the sort of long-term feasibility of Bitcoin. So I really look forward to that. And, and actually, uh, I'm, we're also going to be organizing a meetup on the evening before at the conference, I think Sebastian is going to give a talk then, uh, and we're going to have a few other talks. I think there will be a big meetup, perhaps. Or I expect, you know, hopefully we'll have like hundred people or something. So uh, it should be fun. Uh, so if anybody wants to come or is planning to come, please let us know. Uh, we'd love to meet up, and also you can get fifteen percent off uh, with the discount code uh, Epicenter IBC for Inside Bitcoin's conference, I guess. Uh, yeah, so Epicenter IBC in all caps, 50% off. If this kind of code doesn't work, uh, uh, we'll have it in the show notes as well. Um, so, uh, Brian, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got started in the cryptocurrency space and how you got started with uh, Open Bazaar? Uh, sure. So, uh, I guess I've been following Bitcoin um, in general for, for quite a bit of time now uh, and I hadn't been involved in any projects or any kind of uh, coding in regards to the technology but um, I was looking for something important to kind of get involved with and I'm not really sure why uh, but when I saw the demonstration uh, about uh, dark market uh, up in Toronto at their hackathon it looked like something that was uh, pr- pretty powerful, uh, pretty interesting idea. And I saw that they had released uh, the source code um, on GitHub. And so I looked into it and it was something that immediately I thought, okay, I can, I can get involved with this. I think it's probably um, you know, within my skill set to start poking around and, and get involved. Um, I actually emailed... Uh, uh, Amir Taki, uh, who had who had um, started, the, who came up with the idea for that and started that that proof of concept um, about 
getting involved and he said that he was planning on basically uh, relinquishing the, the code to the community and just you know letting it go. Uh, they weren't planning on working on it any further. Uh, it was just like a 48 hour project. And so um, he said, you know, just go ahead and do it, whatever you want to do with it. Uh, at the time, they were they were pretty busy with Dark Wallet, and they still are. So um, they didn't really have the bandwidth to kind of work on it. Um, and so I think about about that time, uh, Reddit was was kind of hyping the idea up, and everybody was getting excited about it. But it kind of took a quick turn towards the whole Silk Road kind of aspect of it. Um, and the name was just like this huge controversy and it was really disappointing to me personally because I felt like there was this huge potential for like a, like a paradigm shift in the way that we were using cryptocurrencies and they were just so focused on like the name. It was just, it, it was just kind of ridiculous how um, you know, crazy it was getting. And so I just said, you know what, let's, let's take the code, let's rename it and just try and start clean and, and maybe people will start to focus on, on the actual uh, important aspects of the project. And so that's what I did. I think it was on, on the uh, Beyond Bitcoin podcast that you, you talked about fundamentalism and this kind of demonstrates you know, to what extent people can be, uh, you know, it can be, can feel strongly about certain things when, uh, when it's so charged with ideology. Um, but uh, but you know I I, I I completely agree with with you that um, changing the name to something uh, more accessible to people and that sort of dif- distances itself from the dark web aspect of it uh, is definitely important and, and very valuable if you want to have some sort of mass adoption with this. Well, I mean another another important part of that was that. If, if the project was not going to be run by the dark wallet team, it didn't really make sense to kind of keep that dark something branding. I, I just did, I didn't think that that was something we wanted to do because it kind of unnecessarily associated us with them um, and their team, and they're not involved. So it also was a good way to you know, separate that. So, so what's the, the main idea behind uh, Hand Open Bazaar? The main idea is that right now with um, the decentralized Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, we have this beautiful kind of currency application and we have a bunch of like ideas all around how we use it and we have wallets and all this stuff, but people are still kind of scrambling around saying, well, where's the merchant adoption or, you know, where can I use it? Like it's only valuable if you can use it. And for the longest time, it seemed like it was really primarily valuable because of the speculation. As the price was going up, that's what people were finding it valuable as. They were saying, okay, I'll buy it now and in six months, hopefully I'll make all this money. Uh, And not really paying attention too much to how they were uh, using it on a daily basis. I, I still find myself having that issue. And if you saw that CNN special the other day, uh, you saw that, um, he had trouble spending, you know, Morgan Spurlock had trouble spending his money as well. Um, and so I think a lot of where like the business building in Bitcoin has gone is, you know, building like a Coinbase or a BitPay, like where's a point of sale terminal, all these things to try and get traditional businesses using Bitcoin. And that's great. That's, that's kind of been covered. But how do we make it um, 
how do we enable all these people online that want to use Bitcoin to use it to do online e-commerce and also kind of keep the spirit of decentralization? Uh, like, do we really need, um, you know, a big business like eBay or PayPal or somebody like that to kind of sit in the middle and, and babysit our e-commerce? Um, we have this awesome peer-to-peer -peer currency. Where is that business network? Where's that e-commerce network that allow us to kind of like seamlessly use it? And, and so that's, that's where we see this huge potential, uh, at least for like the first application of what Open Bazaar could be. Yeah, I think that's actually a, a great way of putting it. And I hadn't even thought of it like that before, right? Because if you look at, and I think that's one of the problems we've been having in Bitcoin, is that there's not enough incentive for like users to adopt Bitcoin. Like the, unless you like love the technology or like libertarian or, or want to speculate on that, like why would you use Bitcoin? There's very, very few cases where it actually makes sense. I mean, I guess using like dark market is another one. Um, and now if something like Microsoft accepts Bitcoin, well, it doesn't matter for most people, right? Because you were already able to buy there. It's, it's not like a reason to then go out and buy Bitcoin, for example, or get involved in cryptocurrencies. But then, of course, that's totally different with Open Bazaar now because that is something you will have possibilities there that just aren't accessible unless you have cryptocurrencies, unless you engage in cryptocurrencies. So, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think that's a, a great a great way of putting it, that it really... Um, I, I may, it may well be more powerful in driving adoption than all this merchant adoption for merchants where you can already pay with credit cards anyway. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's funny that the darknet market kind of aspect of using Bitcoin has been so negatively talked about because of the actual content that is on, that is being sold, right? But the people that are truly... Um, really analyzing it properly are looking at it and saying, look, they are demonstrating the value of using a cryptocurrency, right? Like they have built a working marketplace, a community, a reputation, uh, you know, system, a, you know, it's just, it's, it's a proof. It's a use case. It's proving the technology. And if you can take that and you can apply it in a broader sense, like don't just focus so much on selling drugs or guns or whatever. If we can bring that back into like what you would call, you know, the clear net, it could be used for just about anything. And it's like, they've done all the legwork of just really showing that it can, that it can function. So, um, you know, what we're doing is we're just, we're, we're not going to, you know, replicate that exact business in the in the in the dark web and just bring it bring it out for everybody to use and i think it's going to be super powerful i think when people get comfortable um they get beyond that whole i don't want to use it for silk road type stuff um you know perception i think i think there, there's going to be a huge uh, drive for adoption of these kinds of uh, projects technologies so could you walk us through a simple transaction so let's say i'm a small business or maybe I'm an artisan and I, I make, um, I don't know, wooden spoons <laughs> and uh, I want to sell them on, uh, I want to sell them on uh, Open Bazaar or using Open Bazaar and, um, and I want to protect myself from fraud or from, uh, you know, buyers that maybe uh, aren't going to pay me. So I, I want to use an arbiter. So let's say a simple like three person transaction where there's, a seller, an arbiter, and a buyer. 
Can you describe how that works? What's the process um, for initiating the transaction up until delivery of a product, let's say? Sure. So there's a lot of things involved with what you just said, right? Um, and that's what makes this project, I think, pretty complex is that there's like several really complex and challenging uh, areas and we're trying to do all of them at once, right? Um, so I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll give you the kind of high level walkthrough of like a transaction, like what you described. So first of all, um, you know, OpenBazaar, we're building it as a, a protocol and platform uh, that can be used for just about any type of business. So uh, as we build that protocol and design it, we're also building our own example client. It's, it's, it's kind of similar to Bitcoin where Bitcoin is a, is a protocol, but it also has, you know, they have the Satoshi client, the wallet, that is kind of the reference implementation of that protocol. And so we also have a uh, client software that we're building uh, that basically is the, the basic use case of OpenBazaar. And the way that it works for what you described is you would, you would essentially download this client as a merchant or a buyer, it's all the same client. Um, so the merchant, we'll just start from where the merchant is actually putting the item for sale. So he would, he would install this application and you can you, you know, customize your storefront and all that stuff. And then you can add a listing into the OpenBazaar network. And what happens is uh, it, it looks very much like it would you know, for like an e-commerce tool where you can put a title, description, price, et cetera, about your item, pictures, whatever. But on the backside, what's happening is uh, the client is generating what is called a Ricardian contract. And all that is is it, it's a... It's a structured uh, JSON document. JSON, I mean, for non-programmers, it's basically just a way uh, to format the description of your listing. But at the same time, because it's a Ricardian contract, it's also very human readable. And so it's almost like a real contract. If you were to look at it, a computer could understand it and do what it needs to do because it's structured, but also humans can look at it and very clearly understand what the terms of the listing and contract and service is. Um, and so our client would generate that and it would announce it to the network. A buyer would come and download this same application and say search for uh, you know, wooden spoons. And your listing for wooden spoon would, would show up in your client just like you would if you were searching eBay or whatever. You'd click on that listing and uh, if it looked good, you'd, you'd say purchase, just like you always would in e-commerce tools. Uh, and then the, the thing that, uh, or where it starts to uh, deviate from the normal transaction online is normally you would assume that the, the merchant is also the arbiter or perhaps PayPal is the arbiter. Um, in this case, we don't have that, right? Because it's just truly peer-to-peer. -peer. So the third party is what we call a notary they're essentially an arbiter. Um, but you can choose from a list of notaries that are on the network and they all have, um, or they're going to once, once the protocol is finished, but it, they will have a reputation score associated with them. And you'll be able to kind of rank notaries and choose one that you trust that has a good fee structure. Um, and they would serve uh, willingly as the third party to your purchase. Um, and it's important to note that this third party doesn't exist unless, uh, well, they don't enter into the equation unless there's a problem. This is basically just kind of like an insurance type thing. Yeah, one question here. 
so if if I'm so assuming I'm the buyer now and I, and I, I look for wooden spoons in my open bazaar client, uh, how then does Sebastien's listing get to me, right? Because there's no server in the middle that I'm like calling that show, gives me all the listings. So how does that process of distributing the contracts and offers work? So, so when you um, when you connect when you open up your application and you connect to the network, um, it goes out to a couple uh, kind of like super nodes on the network who help you kind of bootstrap your um, visibility of all the different users on the system. And then what it does is it together all those clients as they're talking to each other they have uh, they create what is called a distributed hash table, which is basically a giant a distributed database. Um, and this is where we kind of store information that's necessary for doing like product discovery and other and other aspects like finding notaries and, and stuff like that. So when you open up your app and you search for an item, it will basically go out to that network and look for listing IDs uh, that match what you're searching for. And then you can go directly to those peers and get that, that data. So you mentioned you know, the reference client. So this assumes that uh, someone could develop uh, an app, perhaps uh, a merchant platform based on OpenBazaar uh, on the protocol. Could you, uh, uh, yeah, so could a merchant have OpenBazaar contracts on some other platform? This could be a proprietary platform like eBay. I mean, that, not, that would be very useful, but it could be like on his website, for example, or on another uh, market uh, app or platform like on Tor or either on, on the clear web. Yeah, and so that's that's kind of where we want to go with it, right? So we are publishing kind of the structure for these different Ricardian contracts. So you can easily build any kind of tool or integrate it into any existing system to generate those contracts. So for instance, like let's say, let's say Craigslist wanted to do, get their stuff out onto the open bizarre network. You know, they could, if you create a Craigslist listing, they could easily put all that data into a Ricardian contract behind the scenes and then create an open bizarre link and so when you search on Craigslist and find like a listing that you like, you know, if there was a link, you would click it and it would open your OpenBazaar client and you could use it to find that peer who's offering that service or whatever and do it through OpenBazaar. So, and you could do the same thing with other e-commerce sites, you know, instead of like, you know, buy it here, you could do buy it on OpenBazaar or whatever. Or if they could even, you know, just do all that behind the scenes anyway. So, yeah, we're building... Um, we're building a platform. Uh, the client, we're hoping to have kind of this API where uh, people who are building custom applications that wanted to, to use OpenBazaar could just like, you, you know, call the API and do whatever they need to do um, and, and talk through our core client. Cool. Well, that sounds really interesting. We'll get back to, uh, to uh, OpenBazaar and we want to get into recording contracts, how those work, arbitration, and also talk about, you know, sort of new paradigm stuff. Uh, in just a few minutes, before we do that, I'd like to talk about our sponsor, Shapeshift. So Shapeshift, as you know, is the fast and easy way to uh, buy and sell altcoins. They support about a dozen different altcoins. And uh, what we'd like to do today is uh, demonstrate one of, their, uh, one of the features that they've developed, which is uh, the Shapeshift Lens. And so Shapeshift Lens is basically a, uh, well, it's a... Um, 
Chrome extension, sorry. And that Chrome extension allows you anywhere in your browser that you see a Bitcoin address, you'll be able to uh, pay with any altcoin that they support um, without having to go through their website or anything like that. So directly uh, on the website that you see the Bitcoin address, you've got a little icon. So I'm just gonna go ahead and show you how this works. So, uh, so today we're on the OpenBazaar GitHub page. And since we're talking about OpenBazaar, we might as well donate to OpenBazaar. Um, so I've got a Bitcoin address right here. So this is a multi-sig address. And I can, I've got the Shapeshift uh, Chrome extension installed. You can get that on the Chrome Web Store. And so all I do is just click on the little icon. So it's it's went ahead and detected that, uh, that Bitcoin address. I just click here on the Shapeshift icon and I say pay with, and I'm gonna pay with Dogecoin. And so it'll generate uh, this little window here on your screen. You can set the amount or not, you don't have to, you can just send whatever, but if you set the amount, it'll specify what amount you uh, you should send to it. So I'm gonna go ahead and pay. And here I've got a QR code and I'm gonna use my Dogecoin wallet to scan that. There we go. And I'm just gonna send a dollar. There we go. So send. And that transaction will be processed by the network. And in a few minutes, uh, we'll be able to see that transaction on the blockchain. So the nice thing about ShapeShift, among other things, is that it doesn't require you to send them any of your personal information. Uh, you stay completely anonymous when you use it. Uh, you don't even have to give them your email address. So that's a great thing about it. And it's fast. So as, as soon as you uh, send the, uh, like in this case, Dogecoin, uh, you're, they don't they don't uh, wait for any confirmation. So as soon as they receive the transaction, they take care of uh, sending the other currency to uh, the, the, the party you're sending it to. So go to shapeshift.io, give it a try, tell us what you think, and uh, we'd like to thank Shapeshift for the support of Epicenter Bitcoin. And, and quite possibly the first Doge donation, of course, it, it gets to you guys as a Bitcoin donation, but at least it was sent. <laughs> As, as a Doge donation. So I don't, I don't know if somebody's, perhaps somebody has done it before with the same uh, uh, shapeshift lens and, and we, uh, you wouldn't know. So could, could, you, could you sort of just walk us through how, like, how this transaction would work? Like, so I put my, um, uh, my uh, wooden spoons up on, on Open Bazaar and and then say Brian or one of you is interested in buying my nice wooden spoons to make some music and uh, and you go ahead and pay for it with Bitcoin can you can you describe the process there like how the contracts get generated etc so when you uh, when a when a user uh, buys that contract kind of where I was at when he when he says I want to buy this service or this product um, he'll choose that third party the notary and then once that's done uh, he will basically, he'll sign that, he'll digitally sign that contract, that offer, right? So it has, it has the original information, which is about the merchant and the service. And then he kind of adds some of his own data, which is like what he'll bid on the contract or what he's going to pay and all that stuff. And, uh, and then he'll take that, he'll digitally sign it and he'll send that copy to the notary. Uh, the notary would then say, yeah, I'll be third party to this this transaction and what he does is because now he has that that contract it includes the merchant and the buyer's data he has their their bitcoin 
uh, public keys and then he takes his public key and he is able to create a special um, escrow address from those three keys and so therefore at that point um, the transaction uh, is a two of three multi-signature transaction and so the funds will only go somewhere once two of the three of them agree uh, to do so and so you can see that at that point right like this this whole transaction could occur without any interaction with the notary uh, beyond just him initially agreeing because uh, the buyer and seller have the power to to move the funds either way on their own um, and and therefore that's where that's how open bazaar can basically be a feeless um, e-commerce solution because when things are are properly done you know everybody's happy there's no one in the middle to say you know zoink i'm going to take some fees from you guys uh just for you know showing up to to our house um so that's one really big benefit of using open bazaar while at the same time uh if something does go wrong you do have that third party in the in the involved and they can be brought in to do arbitration um if necessary so at, at that point, the notary, um, he, he, he generates that, that escrow address and he, and he sends his signed copy of that contract back to all parties. So everybody's got a contract of the three parties having signed this agreement, this transaction. Um, within the client, it's, it's, a lot more, it's a lot simpler than, than kind of what I'm describing. I'm, I'm talking behind the scenes. So basically what happens is um, once the notary has signed it, he'll, he'll just you know, mark it in, his, in the app that he's on board and then everybody will get notified uh, that, that the transaction is going on. Uh, the buyer can then uh, deposit the money for that item into uh, the, the escrow address. Uh, and, uh, and once that's done, the merchant will see that the money is in that account, um, that it's available and it's locked and then he will be able to uh, ship the item once the buyer sees that the item has been shipped and uh, he and everything is all good, then he would say, "Okay, go ahead, release the funds." And then if the multi-signature transaction would be signed and sent to the merchant. The merchant could then sign it and broadcast it to the Bitcoin network, and the money will be moved, and everybody's happy. So that's that's the happy case in a in a nutshell. Yeah, I I mean I think the amazing thing about this, you no, know, it's just how much it all bases on, on this really simple Bitcoin feature, you know, of multi-sig, you know, because this is so powerful. You know, there's so many things you can do, and, and here we really are sort of replacing one of the, uh, essentially, so Bitcoin is essentially replacing two of the, the core functionalities that you could say some play, uh, a platform like eBay has, right? One is the payment side, so that's just purely Bitcoin, right? And then you have the whole dispute side, which then you have the multi-sig with, with the arbitrator. So it's, it's pretty, I think it's, it's pretty amazing, you know, how, uh, how powerful multi-sig is. And it's, at the same time, you, you described a very simple transaction here, but you can also imagine doing something supremely more complex than a simple three-party, like, merchant, buyer, arbiter, uh transaction you know you could have multiple arbiters you could have uh i i i would even go as far as saying that um if we have smart oracles uh you could even include some of those in the transaction so for example 
um, uh, if you want to do shipment tracking and have that be sort of one of the ways to unlock funds or to validate that you know the item was shipped, and that takes uh, one of the uh, becomes one of the signatures to the multisig. Uh, someone's work actually someone's working on this uh, a startup called Handshake. Um, so you know you could have con uh, you could have transactions which are quite complex and difficult to, to to recreate today with the systems that we have in place. Yeah, and obviously what we just talked about is kind of like the most bare bones, simple uh, use case of what we're doing. I mean, we have. You know, our focus is to try and prove it out by doing this and then expanding it from there. But yeah, there's all kinds of different complex things you can do. And like the multi-signature transaction, you know, it doesn't always have to be just three parties. Uh, there's other ways to include additional parties and, and there may be reasons for doing so in different types of, uh, in different, different types of, you know, deals. So yeah, definitely. Uh, I think we're learning as we go. Um, and it won't be long before we'll start looking at more advanced use cases, I think, like what you described. So uh, we mentioned recording contracts a few times, and it seems like those are sort of a, a core component of uh, OpenBazaar. Can you explain briefly what those are? Uh, the recording contracts. So the recording contracts are this really ingenious uh, idea. Um, I'd love to be able to take credit for it, but I can't. Um, they were originally kind of thought up of by a, um, a gentleman named Ian Grieg, and um, he is kind of the godfather of the Ricardian contract and described what it was and, and how it, it kind of would work from a, a beginner level. And uh, he actually published some a white paper, I believe, online about what it is and how they work. And uh, several projects have already um, begun to look at using them and, uh, and trying to figure out how they could apply to, to what they're doing. I know that um, Open Transactions uh, is one group that uses the Ricardian contract. And also, I think that uh, Ethereum is also looking into ways that they might be able to use uh, Ricardian contracts. Um, they can be very customizable uh, flexible and ways to support different use cases. There's no like fixed um, format or structure of like how, how they look. So they can model just about any kind of uh, online transaction. But like I said before, I mean, the real point of it is that these are contracts that are computer uh, parsable. They're able to be read by computers and, and, and used programmatically while at the same time remaining very human readable. And so you kind of get that dual uh, benefit from from that. Um, we have uh, several people on our team that are working primarily on like contracts uh, and like how they can be used and what our structures are going to be, what the format's going to be. One of them is um, our, our main guy is uh, Dr. Washington Sanchez, who's based out of Australia, and he is uh, a super smart guy. He's working on. Um, coming up with our, our version 1.0 uh, standards for, for doing these direct transactions. And um, he's also published a bunch of different little descriptions and, and walkthroughs of different use cases like peer-to-peer -peer lending um, and auctions. So like an eBay style auction could be supported with this. Um, and there's, there's a bunch of different ways 
that the contracts can be extended to, to support really cool new ideas. Um, and I've even seen people proposing uh, systems like you know, a decentralized Uber replacement uh, using these contracts. It's kind of the lifeblood of, of our project. Cool. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about the question of arbitration. Uh, I read that there, there are two different functions. So there's, there's first is the arbitra arbiter, and there's also notary. And, and I read somewhere that those should be separated. Um, can you explain that, and, and why, why, is, why are there two different ones and not just one? So this is one of the aspects of our product that's still um, a little up in the air because we're still trying to figure out what the real best approach is for this. But essentially the reason for the separation is that uh, a notary in our eyes is the party that should be responsible for kind of um, shepherding the transaction. So they're the one that would, would be signing the transaction, um, you know, communicating with the, uh, with the other two parties, um, just kind of handling the basic stuff. Where the arbitration comes in is that uh, at this point, you know, let's say there's a problem. Uh, a guy is selling, uh, you know, a, a, a fancy watch and they're arguing over the quality of it or like some detail about it that wasn't, you know, wasn't what the buyer thought. It needs, it has, there's some expertise there, right? So when arbitration comes in and he has to determine what, what to do, um, then you can bring in this arbiter who, who would have that expertise, be able to make that kind of decision and basically advise the notary to do what, uh, what, is, the, what is in the best interest for all parties. So the notary acts on, on on behalf of the parties involved in the transaction? Yeah, so the notary should be someone that both parties uh, trust. Uh, the importance is, of that can't be under, uh, you know, overstated because they're the ones that are that second party. If, if the buyer somehow had more of an advantage with that notary, you know, there could be collusion against the, the, the third party and they could release funds wherever they wanted, right? Like it, it even could be the case that the buyer and the notary are the same person or the merchant and the notary are the same person and then what would you do? So it's really important that that third party is somebody that both sides uh, trust. And I think that that's going to be one of the big challenges of, of getting this network off the ground because, uh, you know, any new reputation system uh, or any reputation system in general is, is, is going to be gamed at some point, right? Like people are going to try and figure out ways to... Um, do fraudulent actions or like collude against uh, naive users. Right. So, so that's where reputation becomes really, really crucial you now in, in the selection of, of the notary and, and the, the arbiter as well. Right? Yeah, the reputation. I mean, it's, it's probably the single biggest issue uh, with, this, uh, with this project and, and the one that's the least solved at this point. Um, we have a lot of really great ideas about what we want to do to solve the problem. Um, we're not really sure if they're going to work. I mean, in the end, this is all a big experiment um, to see if we can do this in a decentralized way. I mean, there's a reason why um, businesses that you would you could consider peer-to-peer -peer are still very centralized. It's much easier to control the experience for all your users and and kind of maintain control of, of what's going on and not let it get out of hand. Like, like Uber is considered 
a peer-to-peer -peer service, right? Like I'm offering you a car service, it's just me and you doing things, but there's still Uber is that third party, is that trusted third party. And if there's a problem, we both know that like Uber would step in and handle whatever issue there is, right? Like if the merchant got screwed over or the buyer had some issue with the merchant, they could step in and do something. They could do that arbitration step. But in a decentralized network where everybody is anonymous, how do you provide that for users? Like how, how, how can you do that? Like I can trust Uber, I know they're a company, I can call them, I can write to them, I can go and visit them or whatever. They have a physical address um, in some country. But like with three parties that are anonymous around the world, how do you do that? And that's, that's the big question that we're trying to answer. Um, and and that's, that's a huge part of what we're working on. I mean, that seems to be one of the, the sort of absolute core questions in the whole Bitcoin space and, and especially in the whole uh, Bitcoin 2.0 space because there are so many uh, cases where that becomes absolutely critical you know, to, to, to get this reputation problem right. Yeah, and I think that, you know, with Bitcoin, that's one of the most, that's the, that's the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is they found a way to create that, that trusted, that trustless consensus without having to have that centralized person. That's, that's what's so elegant about, uh, you know, the whole design. Now, one interesting way to think about how this sort of disrupts the existing model. Like, so now when you, if we take the peer-to-peer uh, -peer exchange um, scenario where you have two parties uh, transacting with each other, PayPal, in the case of eBay, would be the arbiter. If there's a, if there's a dispute, then PayPal would uh, intervene and, and side on either side uh, after some sort of uh, conflict resolution process. Uh, and we pay for that uh, indirectly in fees. You could also argue that you know, within the Visa network or MasterCard credit cards, you pay for uh, ar some sort of arbitration also in banking, like the fees get absorbed in the system. This is somewhat different where you have to pay directly. You have to, it, it, it imputes the cost of arbitration on the parties in, in the transaction directly. Um, how, how do you think this, people would, how do you think people would react to this? And, and then secondly, how would arbiters get paid? Do they get paid upfront, like a percentage of the transaction for even being in the transaction and then get paid extra if they have to intervene or? How how does payment uh, how the the payment models work? So, so generally, right now, the way that it would work is that the notaries have a um, they can decide on their 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 fee structure, right? Like, so they could say, uh, you know, it's going to be I'll charge one percent of whatever the transaction cost was to serve as your notary if you need me, right? So. And that's, that's decided at purchase time. So in that step where the buyer and the, the buyer you know, says, I'm going to buy it, and he sends it over to the notary, that's where that notary would put that, that terms of agreement in there into the, into the recording contract. So that would be stated up front what he would be asking for if there was an issue. Um, so let's say that it gets to the last step, the buyer paid, the seller shipped, and then they're deadlocked. They can't figure out what to do. The buyer won't release the funds or whatever. They could notify that notary and he would basically, you know, figure out what's going on. He could then add his fee into the, 
uh, into the, the transaction, the release funds transaction, and send it to the parties, and then they could sign it and broadcast it. And that would most likely it would include his fees, as he stated, um, and then it would get broadcast to the network and, and done that way. So that's where that he's able to insert his fees. Now, uh, why do we think that that's going to work? Well, I mean, we're we're basically democratizing that that third party position, right? So anybody can come onto the network and say, I want to be a notary and serve in that role and start building reputation. Um, it creates another way for people to make income in the, in the uh, system uh, and serve it in that capacity. Yeah, one idea that we talked about a long time ago, I remember hearing about it and thought this is absolutely brilliant and you know this is going to be so, uh, so important in the future is the service that bit rated. Uh, you're probably familiar with it, no, but it, it, it has the same idea of a, of a marketplace of arbitration. Uh, will you integrate that in some way? It seems like that would be a perfect fit. Uh, yeah, I think Bitrated is, gr is great. Um, I think their newest version is really awesome. Uh, we, we actually talked with Nadav, you know, the creator of Bitrated, We've talked to them before in the past and then uh, just recently, you know, as they released their new version because they're doing something that's so similar in the space, but um, it's it's very focused on that one aspect of what we're doing. And it's also, it, it's almost like a, a competitor more than really something that we'd integrate together, I think, because of the different strategy, right? Like they have a more centralized approach to this. But they're doing something with the same goal in mind, right? They're building a web of trust where people can build reputation and, and serve as that third party. And so I think that, you know, at some point in time, maybe there's a way that we can work together, or integrate what we're doing. I think it would be awesome. I think he's a great guy and their team is awesome and, and what they're doing is great. And so I would love to do that. I don't, I don't know if I see a perfect fit right now, but maybe in the future. I mean, one way I could imagine, for example, right, if you have uh, some sort of open bazaar client, right, it could, uh, it, it could offer, like, or, you know, it could have an, an option as sort of a, you know, bitrated uh, certified or bitrated uh, high rated arbiter, and, you know, it could display that information, you know, it could be like a way, uh, maybe it could be a secondary a secondary layer of reputation, right? That that gets pulled in, and I mean, of course, it's not perfect, right? Because it's, or it, it may only be suitable in in some use cases because it does get rid of the anonymity to some extent, right? Like you, I don't know if you can have pseudonymous arbiters on that, but it seems to be more geared towards the like, you know, I'm a lawyer and I'm doing this, but but for for those use cases, it may work well. No? Yeah, I mean, I think that. We're obviously not limiting our our system to just real world people or anything like that. But there there are um, you know real world known identities. But I do see a use case there, and I do think that some people will prefer to uh, work on the network like that. And so yeah, you're right. I mean, any way of bringing any kind of trust from another reputation system in and somehow applying that, I think would be beneficial, especially for people that have worked very hard outside of Open Bazaar to build a reputation. I can see like, for instance, maybe an eBay seller who has like this massive rating and he spent the last 15 years building that, coming to Open Bazaar and becoming like a nobody would probably kind of suck for them, right? 
they they lose that. But finding ways of bringing other trust into the Open Bazaar network and, and and kind of bootstrapping that trust would be really awesome. And I think you know, for instance, Bitrated, if they're able to be successful with that and they start getting a lot of traction in that, you know, integrating that into Open Bazaar would be would be really cool, and I think it would be really beneficial to our users. The, the sort of thing I was thinking about uh, when, when reading about the, the arbitration, uh, and Brian, Fabian, I want to get your thoughts on this, is to what extent could arbitration be, like rely on some sort of a distributed consensus, me- consensus or voting mechanism for, I mean, maybe not for transactions where products are sold because you sort of have to have, um, I mean, it's it's different, right? But for certain types of transactions, it seems like a distributed voting mechanism could work for uh, for arbitrating um, uh, conflicts. Yeah, I don't know if this is exactly what you were uh, you're you're alluding to, but um, we have actually Washington wrote a a nice little description on GitHub about how this might work. Is that thir- make that third party uh, actually like a voting pool, and so you could have you know, let's say a hundred people that are part of an organization or, or that third party and they could vote and somehow determine what that, that third party is going to do as a group. Um, you could have some kind of voting mechanism there. Um, there's, you know, these are different things that could be uh, built in. And I'm sure if we're able to succeed and like get, um, you know, get a lot of people using this system, they're going to start thinking about it in ways like that and, and figure out how to expand that. We don't, we don't currently have any plans to implement that stuff right in the near term, but, you know, obviously all these things are like sitting there on a whiteboard uh, to look at in the future. And I think that that would, you know. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a really nice and sort of obvious way of scaling for like different security needs, right? So you can have you can maybe have, you will have cheap arbiters and, and expensive arbiters, you know, ones with more application and, and more at stake than maybe for the, the sort of, you know, use case of I'm ordering a book from someone and, and you know, this costs $10 or something, you'll know, have someone very cheap and it's just one person. But then if it's something expensive, of course, yeah, I mean, obviously you would want to have several arbiters, you know, most likely. Maybe you'd have three different arbiters and then a majority decide, or five different arbiters, a majority decide that maybe you have certain levels that you say, oh, are you willing to pay more because you want to have a high quality, you know? So it seems like totally uh, nice. I mean, it, it reminds a lot of, uh, of Codius, you know? It's the idea of, uh, of oracles. Uh, and, and it's nice because it like scales super well, right? Then maybe you could have uh, or, or you could have a first level of arbiters that are like cheaper, and then if, if there's some some dispute there, it could escalate to the next group of arbiters or something like that. Yeah, and to extend on that, you know, coming back to the example a while ago, you could have like just like the, for product shipping, you have like a base level arbitration for something that's maybe like a book under ten dollars would be like the DHL API saying exactly. That the Great point. Delivered. Yes. Yeah. No, no, that's a great point. Exactly, yeah. You could have the first level could be totally automated, could just be the tracking information, and then you can have the escalation. And maybe you would have it that the person who escalates the next level it then has to pay the arbitration fees, for example. So you have a disincentive to escalate. 
but yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a great example, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really great. I mean, we've actually had discussions around this because, um, you know, just tossing around the idea of like, what ha I mean, is one notary, is one third party enough? Like, does it, is the risk of collusion too high? If we just have one notary, should we have a group of notaries? Should we have this hierarchical kind of escalation service as you guys are describing? Like, there's like a ton of ways to, to maybe look at this and approach it. And the beauty of what we're, what we're trying to build is that nobody's limited to that, right? Like, so it's not like we're going to come out and say, this is the one way you have to do it. People could craft OpenBazaar compliant clients that do some of the things you're doing. Like if, if they want to build some really robust um, network on top of OpenBazaar, they could do so. And, and so, you know, these are all things that we, we want to look at. If, you know, as soon as I'm sure Washington sees this and some of the other guys on the team, they're going to go nuts and, and we're going to be down a rabbit hole trying to figure out <laughs> how to do what you guys are suggesting and, and other uh, ideas. So, uh, I mean, that, but that's one of the really great things about this project is that people from all over the world are coming flying in and, and proposing like these, what you would think are crazy ideas, but they're totally implementable with what we're doing. I mean, you, it could easily be done. Well, not easily. But it can be done. Um, it's just up to us to kind of think about, you know, how it should be done. And and since we haven't really released, we don't know how people are going to want to use it yet. Uh, our our strategy is to stay simple and then expand from there. But the the future is so bright, I think, for these kinds of technologies. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, moving on a little bit to the sort of a bigger picture. I mean, we have been talking about it to some extent, but. So one of the things that I've been sort of trying to wrap my head around, and then Sebastian, so you also put that in kind of a, uh, in one of the questions, right? Is this a platform or a protocol, right? And, and obviously it's, it's like a, a protocol, but then the question is, so let's say I, I was a startup, uh, an entrepreneur, and I, I wanted to say like, I, I want to compete with eBay so I want, I want to create a for-profit company and I want to make money with that, hopefully. And I, I want to provide a service that, you know, competes with uh, eBay or maybe a, maybe just the buy it now version of eBay if I had an auction. It doesn't really matter. Um, now, how would you go about that? Would you fork the project and maybe put in some, some fees that go to a central party uh, and then write a client to distribute or... Uh, what would the approach be there and, and or how do you see that playing out? So I think that that's, that's a pretty complex question to answer, right? Like it depends on very much on the type of business you'd want to build. But if we go with the eBay example that you're proposing, so we hope to have um, to develop a Ricardian contract structure that would support an auction type service. And so that means that, um, you know, clients on the Open Bazaar network that could that can handle an auction style recording contract would most likely um, respond in that way. So like you could essentially check for peers that support that and they all talk to each other over the Open Bazaar protocol. Um, but but basically what would happen is you don't need you don't need to fork the code. Uh, what we're gonna do is the the main code will have an API that does a lot of like the fundamental network stuff. 
like being able to push contracts to the network and talk to peers and do those those types of things. Um, and you could just build an app. It could be a centralized app, a distributed app, a decentralized app. It could be a mobile app, whatever. It just would need to talk to that that client code, the the API, and that's how you would interface with other people on the network. So if you're going to build an eBay, you know you could essentially just build a you know a centralized website, just like eBay, um, where people go and sign up and do all that stuff, and they create contracts on your system. You would just broadcast your uh, Open Bazaar contracts via the API to other peers and they could talk that way. Um, you know, in terms of uh, forking the code, I think the really the only time you really need to fork the code is if you plan on doing something beyond what we're trying to do. Like, for instance, um, if you were going to build, like you mentioned before, like a darknet marketplace and you really need to add in some kind of an anonymity layer like Tor or something like that, then maybe that would be reason to, to take our code and fork it and extend it in a way that we aren't working on or aren't planning on uh, supporting. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. So that seems also like an obvious use case, right? The, the, dark, uh, the dark market is, I mean, I think you, you pointed it out really greatly uh, in the beginning, right? So, so dark markets, obviously there's been all this criticism and, and not surprising, I mean, Obviously, people do uh, all kinds of illegal things on them, but at the same time, you can also say this is such a powerful example for the power of cryptocurrencies. That's just something that you can't do otherwise, and it's something that uh, there's obviously huge potential demand for, uh, whatever one thinks of that. Uh, and now it's but but at the same time, the, the big flaw is uh, they're centralized, right? So there's all kinds of scams, or they get arrested, or uh, things like that. And and then here. Once Open Bazaar is running, like you could, uh, you could uh, replace those, right? So you, you could at least get rid of that centralization. So you could get rid of the scams, or at least these high-level scams. Maybe there would be scams between people, but you know that's the whole point of reputation to prevent that and arbitration. Um, so, but couldn't wouldn't it just be possible that, for example, I would be using Tor? And then you could just use Open Bazaar like that. Why would you have to, to go a step further and, and do you have to build Tor into the protocol itself? Well, for one thing, I mean the the peer to peer network that we've we've built is um, at present it's this is going to get a little technical, I guess, uh, but I don't know any other way to get around it. But essentially, our our network, the way that it communicates, um, supports. Tor current, currently, like you could you could run it over Tor. People have run uh, Open Bazaar nodes on Tor. Um, one issue with that is that any nodes on Tor essentially aren't talking with nodes that aren't on Tor, and so it's not like I can I can be on the network as a non-Tor person, and you can be on a, on the network as a Tor user because you know they're they're separated networks. But the bigger issue is, is that in our next release, we're going to be moving to a type of peer-to-peer -peer network communication that doesn't support Tor. Um, if you don't know, the Tor, the way that it works is when you, you go, you request something, it goes into the Tor system, it goes to that destination, and then when it comes, it has to somehow come back because of the routing that it does. So you have to use something called TCP type connections. Um, our, our newest update is, is going to be UDP, which is basically... Uh, the traffic just goes one way, and it doesn't it doesn't create a connection where it can come back. 
and therefore Tor is not going to be supported out of the box. That's not to say that we couldn't use something different like I2P, um, which does support UDP-based communication, but um, it won't be as easy. And we don't really have it in our roadmap at this time because um, implementing that in the near term is, uh, we feel like it's something that we can add on later and support, um, much like I think what Bitcoin did. Um, just you know, just add it on layer later after we've solved a lot of the bigger challenges, the more pressing challenges like actually functioning transactions, uh, the client software, getting it to work on all these different operating systems, things like that, like fundamental experience. We feel like it's way more important to to nail down before we worry about securing uh, the, its usage on the dark net for a very small percentage of our potential users. Is that also, I mean, it seems like another way of, of looking at this, and perhaps that's actually a, very, uh, a good way or a big advantage of this for you guys is if, when you don't support Tor, because then, you know, the people who want to run those dark nets, and obviously that's going to happen, uh, you know, they will actually have to port the code and they will have to run a fork of OpenBazaar and not OpenBazaar itself, right? So, like, I mean, for you guys, it, it provides a level of protection there, right? That they can say like, well, we, what we support is those legal use cases. Now, there are people doing that, but you know, those are different people that fork the project. It's, you know, this is not the, this is not the project we are running. Uh, so it seems like there's a great advantage for you guys in this way. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the fundamental um, moral issues with working on this project. I think for, and, and that goes for a lot of the developers that we've had come in and out of the project is that uh, the, its potential use and like who's going to be using it uh, is is up for debate right now. We don't know since we haven't released. We don't know if if we're going to get a, a a wave of legitimate users or if we're just going to get overrun by people trying to do uh, to replicate Silk Road. And it doesn't help that like every article that comes out about Silk Road, it's like the first comment is like, "Well, I can't wait till Open Bazaar is out because I don't have to worry about Silk Road." And that's not really what we're building. I mean. Yes, this this concept, this this idea could enable that, but it's just it's just one example of how it could be used. Uh, you know, albeit a very highly visible one, um, and one that comes to the forefront of everybody's mind as soon as you bring it up. But I I think that we're going to be fighting that that perception for a long time to come, and we're doing our best. But like you said, by not supporting that, um, I think it's and, and we very much encourage people. Uh, to read through the code and, and understand the documentation where it says this is not a secure anonymous you know hiding ground for you to sell stuff it's just not even if we were doing that it's nowhere clear it's nowhere close to ready to support that kind of activity it hasn't been audited or anything like that and so you cannot trust it to do that kind of activity and so I think if you were trying to do that you'd, you'd either need to fork it and do all those things so that you can trust it or you just insane because it would be a really bad place to do that. I just I don't think that people realize that they think that they're just going to download it and and go off their on their way selling illegal items, uh, and they're going to be really disappointed when they track them down in like two seconds because right now the software just doesn't support that that use. Cool. Well, uh, I just wanted to circle back briefly because I sort of jumped ahead. I wanted to ask about this the UI question again. Uh, and that's a point where I'm, I'm a tiny bit like still confused. Maybe before we, we go into the use cases. 
So, um, to what extent will, if, if you have different uh, clients, open bizarre clients, to what extent are they interoperable, right? Because, I mean, an open co uh, a contract, in, in, in principle, it seems like any client could, could read any contract and sign any contract. But then at the same time, it seems like there should be this obvious uh, tendency uh, towards specialization, right? So you would have maybe a site for used furniture, you'd have a site for, uh, I don't know, some sort of, uh, I don't know, book, book selling site or like some eBay type site or et cetera, et cetera. Um, so so how, how does this work? Because does that mean that uh, to some extent on a client level, you will filter the contracts that come in and, and only show that the sort of the relevant contracts for this kind of application uh, when a person looks for a product in that client? Or uh, how, how would that work? So, I mean, I don't think that we've fully fleshed out exactly how that's going to look in the end. But the way I look, I can, um, I can't imagine that it will at least start to look like is once we release the main client um, and our and uh, and the API, it will support a, a single basic use case, which is just selling items, right? Like selling a direct sell of an item to a person with three parties, and so that contract structure will be, you know, completed. The client will support that and everything. Um, and so I think that the first round of apps that are kind of built on on top of Open Bazaar will be more of like maybe a listing aggregation service. So for instance, there's, there's someone already out there who's, um, who started to build a site. It's called bizarrebay.org. You can go to that site and... Um, yeah, I saw that, yeah. And you can see uh, he, his, his app basically crawls the Open Bazaar network look for contracts, looks through all the stores, and then he can provide a centralized website where you can go and see all those listings and search through them. And so people can provide additional... Um, services on top of the Open Bazaar network by uh, doing extra filtering or like perhaps they only list uh, contracts that are related to wooden spoons. You know, they could have a wooden spoons emporium and all their contracts are just filtering that out, right? So, uh, and they would have a lot more control over that. They could provide all kinds of different uh, value. And so it's sort of like the Pirate Bay, how it's a centralized service that, that basically uh, helps the, the BitTorrent community, right? Like find items on the network. So that, that's kind of like that first wave of apps I think are going to be like that. And then there's other people that are building tools for like scanning the network and, and things like that. So that initially will be probably the, about the extent of what we see on top of it. The next wave will be where people are able to create new uh, e-commerce workflows. So that's where auctions and peer-to-peer -peer lending and things like that will come in. So, for instance, you wanted to build a peer-to-peer -peer lending service on top of uh, Open Bazaar. You could create a new recording contract that supports that. You could publish that that contract standard, and and it basically would outline the workflow, like how that would work, like how many parties are involved, uh, what are the different stages of the transaction, and then other clients could build. Uh, they could build it into their app as well, and then you guys could all intercommunicate over the same peer-to-peer -peer network. Um, so the details are not really like fully hashed out, but we're starting to like, you know, figure out how that would work. And, um, and we'll probably have a lot more to talk about that in the next few months when we get closer to releasing our first, uh, full version.
Right. So coming back to sort of these use cases, and when I when I mean talking about use cases, I mean uh, I'm thinking about it in a very sort of long term way and extrapolating. So this technology gets you know used and adopted, and then um, to what extent would so cause the examples we've been talking about so far are pretty basic examples of maybe like peer to peer, like person to person, or small business to person. But to what extent could large merchants like I don't know Amazon or Walmart or or even um, product manufacturers uh, like you know it could be Logitech or it could be uh, some book publisher uh, utilize like what ex- what ins- what incentive would they have to utilize a technology like like uh, open bazaar rather than distributing their products on on Amazon or through uh, through um, merchants like Walmart or uh, large large stores. So I think for them, a lot of these large organizations already have like a huge customer support type network um, to kind of help ease any issues there are with the with the product. So they might not be as incentivized to jump on Open Bazaar at first, but you know because they could essentially just start doing Bitcoin transactions, right, and save fees and not have to deal with credit card companies or whatever. Um, I think this is way more beneficial, at least at first and in our eyes for, like you said, smaller merchants um, and users because, you know, there are people that you, you would consider a small business that run like an eBay store or an Etsy store or whatever that are making a million dollars a year, right? Like selling items. And they're still paying 10 to 13% to eBay on every transaction. They're getting mad chargebacks from credit cards. They're getting, um, they have to deal with PayPal, which right there is incentive enough to just find something else to use. Um, And they're just looking for something like this to help them uh, lower that cost, which they can in turn hopefully uh, give back to their users because uh, I don't know about you, but I've looked at all kinds of different listings on eBay and stuff, and usually the prices are jacked up because of those fees, or their uh, you know shipping is exorbitant because they have to work they have to work that overhead in somehow uh, to make enough money to survive. And when you come into a system like Open Bazaar, now you're suddenly only paying for what you really need to pay for, which is if I have an issue with my transaction, then only then am I going to pay fees for this arbitration. Like, why should I subsidize the arbitration across the entire platform if I don't need it? Um, and, and that's kind of the model that eBay works across, is they spread that those costs out to every user. Um, and they also pay for a lot of this the stuff that, that allows them to be more centralized. Uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, in terms of large businesses, I don't know if they'll find it valuable. Ideologically, there are some businesses that are, are larger and, and might do it just because they want to uh, hop on the decentralization wagon and, and kind of get away from the traditional model. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's probably going to take a lot more traction for our network uh, to get off the ground and really prove itself before big players come in and, and decide to use it. So before we wrap up, uh, we'd like to talk a bit about the organization. So how does that work currently, right? Because you guys did not choose the path that many have chosen of creating your own coin and doing crowds, all of that, that, that sort of thing. 
So uh, how are you currently funding development and, and what are the, the plans going forward? Are you planning to monetize it in some way or are you planning to uh, turn this into some kind of foundation? I can't tell you exactly what our plans are because we don't know exactly what they will be for sure yet. Um, you know, we obviously know that um, we're not going to be able to get as much done if we're just operating at our current level, which is just, it's a side it's a side project for everybody involved. Um, so at some point, we'll probably have to think about, uh, you know, a way to fund it in a more uh, organized manner. And whether that's going to be, an organ, you know, an open uh, foundation or like some kind of commercial uh, corporation kind of way of, of, of organizing, I, I don't know yet. Our, we do know, however, that the core... Open Bazaar protocol and network is going to remain open and MIT licensed and uh, stay on GitHub, and it will be free for everybody to to use and look through. That that's that's paramount to our our project and will always remain that way for the entirety of it. Now, how we fund it, that hasn't been decided. Uh, we do know that we don't like to do the coin aspect, and we don't we have uh, stayed away from uh, crowdfunding so far because. We feel as a community that we would not like to ask too much of our users until we actually have something that's uh, working really well and that they find value with. I, I don't like some of this like Kickstarter campaigns where somebody, you know, they rake in all this money and then two years later they haven't really delivered anything. We don't want to be. I've had a lot of experiences with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it, it sucks. It really disenfranchises your users, and and it kind of blows your reputation. So, um, you know, we're we're taking hits on different sites because some people think we haven't moved fast enough or or come out with like a working app yet. But you have to understand that like all these guys on the project are working, you know, until three, four in the morning after they come home from their day jobs to work on this and it's every night and whether you can see it obviously or not um, we, we, we pour a lot of our lives and energy into it, the project and we don't plan on going away anytime soon and hopefully in the very near future we'll have something really exciting to show the community and everybody will be really happy and they won't have paid a dime for it. <laughs> yeah and those people can just roll up their sleeves and get the work if they're not happy. <laughs> yeah, no, cool. I think that's that's a really uh, a really admirable position to have, and uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's fantastic. So I just uh, before we wrap up, I, how many people are actively contributing to this project? So um, I can't remember what the full account is right now. Uh, active, active, uh, serious developers. We probably have about a dozen to twenty people, um, but we've had I think almost. 200 different contributors on our GitHub repository. Um, I think I saw some statistics uh, recently that said that we're one of the um, largest uh, Python projects on GitHub just based on um, you know different contributors coming in and actually pushing code to our repository. So um, it's it's been overwhelming. Um, unfortunately, you know a lot of times it, you get you get you suffer from the too many cooks in the kitchen syndrome. And so we're, we're trying really hard to make sure that people are, um, you know, super, oh, you got 70, so 75 contributors on the main branch and we got, a, we got like 325 forks, you see that up there. And I mean, that's, 
that's a lot of people. If you look at other repositories, it's 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 pretty up there. Yeah, and I, I want to encourage everybody to to go with your. So I'm looking at the GitHub page right now. For those of you listening, I want to encourage everybody to go to this uh, to their GitHub repo. We'll have the link in the show notes um, and uh, contribute if you can. Donate, of of course, if you can, and also. This theory work uh, by uh, Dr. Washington Sanchez, who you mentioned earlier, is just really, really interesting. So there are some articles there uh, on Ricardian contracts, on uh, the voting pools, which you mentioned as well, and um, uh, just really, really interesting white papers uh, that I encourage everybody to read. Peer uh, landing. Yeah. 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 And we also, um, you know, uh, uh, another big reason why some people think it, it, it can be a quiet community at times is because we have, um, we actually have a Slack uh, organization. So if you're not familiar with Slack, it's like an online collaboration tool and uh, anybody's free to join up. If, if you if you get in touch with us, we can get you in there. Uh, we try to keep it as focused on people who are really contributing to the project, but it's still open and a lot of activity in there talking about ways of, of doing decentralized Bitcoin exchange, um, uh, building a reputation systems. Actually, the guy I mentioned before that created Ricardian Contracts, Ian Grigg, he actually is working with us closely in there on trust and reputation stuff as well. Um, and so there's a lot of exciting talk going on in there that you just can't see from the, from the outside really easily. But there's a lot, a lot going on. Fantastic. Maybe the last question. Uh, what's the timeline here? By what time do you expect that we will have a, a client that's actually ready so people can start maybe purchasing, selling things? Uh, on OpenBazaar? So right now, um, the thing that's holding up our next release is um, there's there's two issues. Um, one is our peer-to-peer -peer network. Since I, I mentioned before that we're switching from TCP-based network to a UDP-based network, which is, um, it's all really complex under the scenes. And we want, like one of the biggest gripes with our software has been uh, connectivity. So if you're behind any kind of uh, firewall or, you're on a corporate network or school network or your home router is, is kind of crappy. Like it makes it hard to do peer to peer communication. Um, it's not like a regular website. And so we're trying to solve as many of those issues as possible. So that as many people as possible can, can use it. And, um, and we're, we want to make sure that that's working really well before we release, um, in terms of a timeline, uh, if tonight a breakthrough comes through, you know, it could be next week. Uh, but, you know, it, it just, it, like I said, because we don't have full-time employees working on this stuff, it, it kind of, the development um, push ebbs and flows, and it just depends on when we can get it out the door. So another good reason not to take funding, um, we don't have to meet any deadlines, but we're hoping very soon. Cool, fantastic. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, we will have links to the, the project as well. Uh and the blog, there's, there's quite a few resources also. There's a, a Reddit, uh, OpenBazaar Reddit. We'll have all of those in the show notes. Um, well, uh, thanks so much for coming and joining us today, Brian. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It was great. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, this discussion, and uh, I think this is, this is definitely a project that's going to be uh, extremely interesting to watch. Yeah, and probably very controversial as well. <laughs> very controversial, yes. <laughs> And, and I just, yeah, I, I mean, I was mentioning that to Sebastian before. I think in terms of um, sort of revolutionary potential, you know, this is pretty, like, I mean, this is very much up there with what we've had on the show. I mean, okay, maybe Ethereum, you could say similar, or maybe some of the other projects as well. But, like, 
this is uh, yeah, it's I, I'm absolutely huge, you know, and I think it could be absolutely huge, and um, I, I I can't wait to see where this goes. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, we really think we hope so too. Uh, that's why we're working on it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, thanks so much for joining us today, and uh, for listener, thanks for for listening to the podcast or watching the podcast. Uh, if you want to support the show, there are a few, there's a few things you can do. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Epicenter BTC. Uh, you can also leave us an iTunes review if you listen to the show through iTunes or, or otherwise we have an iTunes account that helps new people uh, find the show. Uh, you can donate to us, maybe with the Shapeshift lens, give us your Dogecoin, we take it from this Bitcoin uh, at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. Um, and then that's it. Yeah, or get in touch if you have some comments or anything. Uh, so thanks for listening and we look forward to being back next week. Yeah.